Welcome to the 50th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with H.T. Norea, author of the financial thriller, The Fund. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is H.T. Norea, author of The Fund. Most everyone listening has lived through the financial ups and downs in the last three years. In Norea's novel, The Fun, Money is the Weapon, and the novel examines the real threat of financial terrorism. H.T., welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on here, Jeff. Sure. Well, I just mentioned your novel, The Fun. Can you explain what readers can expect with your new financial thriller? Uh, well, hopefully something they will not be able to put down. That's number one. That was my a primary objective. Uh, the basic premise of the book is, is a little bit of what you, you started saying there, and that is all the debacle that we've seen in the markets in the last few years. And so I looked around and realized that you know many legitimate, so-called legitimate players in the market have, for purposes of profit and, and good capitalist uh, motives, gone out there and made strategies happen with dark pools of capital, um, and in the process probably damaged a few financial institutions along the way. So I, I thought to myself, well, these are legitimate players in the market. Why couldn't someone with maybe not so legitimate uh, objectives at the end, more politically minded people, more nefarious focused maybe on terrorism, decide to do the same thing? In other words, there's a path that exists obviously for damaging financial markets. So why couldn't someone just decide to do it for purposes of that, that being the end as opposed to uh, profit? And so that became the premise of my book. Now, the, the, the important thing that I had to do with this is take concepts that are financially oriented and not make them something that people are going to be scared about reading about and, and or bored, frankly. So I had, to, I had to make it something that was very accessible for people. So when I talk about derivatives, I make it, I, I write it so that it's something that's part of a storyline that occurs between the human people that are making these decisions as opposed to being a textbook about derivatives. Sure. And, and I'm curious along that line, how did, how did you go about kind of tackling that issue? Because obviously some people uh, read the headlines and don't completely understand global finances. And, and um, obviously it's something that you thought about when you were writing it. Right. Well, I think, I think that, you know, the, the, and I think maybe that's the luxury I have having coming from the industry uh, and, and the long experience I've had in there that I can understand when you see headlines in the newspaper, for example, I read the Financial Times every day, and I look at a headline, I understand that there's something behind that headline that is more than just a, a chart of data. There's people behind that that have made decisions for whatever you know goals and objectives they had. Um, and, and what I did with my book is also present the people behind those headlines and say, well, these are their motives. Some are very human motives, people that are in pursuit of money or in pursuit of power and sometimes love. Uh, they will make decisions that will prompt things that end up in the newspaper uh, and certainly can impact financial markets. So, for example, I took something like derivatives, and I, I wasn't trying to explain to people how to write a derivative and long 
you know, mathematical formula that's involved with that, but rather explain to them where the problem is. And the, and the best way I thought of explaining it is is, is to visualize a, a bowl of, a huge bowl of tangled spaghetti. <laughs> and it's all unraveled. And you, you just don't know what end, you know, what, if you if you put your, your hand on one end of one of those strands of spaghetti, where is the other end? You have no idea. And that is exactly why regulators in the middle of our current problems were concerned about derivatives and, and are still. is because the counterparty risk that exists between a person that writes a derivative and the person that buys it, you just don't know where it ends up in the market. And you worry about how that can impact one financial institution versus another. And you just don't know. And that's where regulators right now are, are fighting, struggling, I mean, literally as we speak, uh, on the Hill, trying to better regulate these and provide greater clarity in these markets so that people can know where the risk lies at the end of the day. So, you know, visualize a tangled, you know, bowl of spaghetti. Well, you don't know where that lies, and that, that's my way of explaining it to people. Right, right. And obviously this is not a financial podcast. It's about fiction, but I'm curious... Right. Um, is there is there kind of a thumbnail description of, of that you could give of of the the basic reason that derivatives exist in the in the yeah, financial it's, markets? It's a, absolutely, um, and, and it's, it's it, it, it goes back in, in a sense in a very basic form. If you can think about a farmer who has a crop of let's say wheat and he's farming it every year, you know, planting the seeds and harvesting it every year. The guy starts out at the beginning of the season, you know, tilling the land and then planting his seeds and then beginning, you know, obviously any fertilizer needs to put in watering and so on and so forth. And he's got to wait a few months before he can actually harvest that and, and realize his cash. So at the very beginning of that season, he's putting in money to plant that crop. And so he's out that money. And But, but he's a farmer and he knows what he's doing. He's, you know, obviously had that land for a while. He knows you know, what the best seeds are and what kind of climate he has and what kind of water and fertilizing needs. So he knows that stuff as well he should. But what he doesn't know and what is outside of his control is what is the price of wheat going to be in three, four, five months. He has no idea, and that's really something subject way out of his hands, and it's, 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 it's you know, something global in terms of commodity prices that, that, that impact him in a very real way. So the way he can cover himself on that risk, which he cannot control, is to is to purchase you know uh, basically a derivative contract that allows him to lock in his sales price for that wheat in the future. Okay, mm-hmm. and so day one when he's planted and he's put the money out, he knows he's locked himself into a certain profit margin which he's comfortable with as opposed to eventually maybe being in the red. That is a very sane use of derivatives. That's a very you know it's a very useful thing for our society, and it's something that you know we can all understand and get and, and you know wrap our arms around. The problem occurs is that what that value, you know, right now we have in the in, in the world economy about five hundred and eighty-two trillion dollars worth of uh, of derivatives, you know, which are many times over, roughly nine, ten times over the value of GDP. So what that means is that that one guy, that one farmer who has locked in a derivative to cover his price risk, there are traders in the market that are trading that risk nine times over. That's the stuff that becomes the global casino stuff that people worry about. Right. Because it is, it, it's, it's just based on that one event, but it's nine times over multiplied. And that's, the, that's the concern. And, and I'm curious, given your, your own background in finance and obviously the, you know, the reading that you do and the research that, that, that you did, 
I'm wondering if, if you've thought about kind of projections, obviously you wrote this novel, but, but kind of in the, in the real world, I mean, where do you see things headed? I mean, given that, that, you know, well, it's, a, you know, it's a, no, that's a really, a, a really great question, Jeff, because it's obviously something we all worry about. And, and I tell you, it's, um, there's a lot of things that are going on right now that are issues that are raised in my book. And again, I raise them in, in the form of a novel, you know, that, that's got a good, you know, human, human characters in there and stuff. But there are ish, underlying issues that come through, through when you read the book that are being discussed right now on the Hill. So, for example, yesterday, uh, the, uh, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, um, as was reported heavily in financial markets, he asked a very tough question of the Fed chairman Bernanke. And he was asking him basically the question of basically... Bernanke being the, the regulator, and um, uh, Jamie Dimon is his name, the chairman mm-hmm. of J.P. Morgan Chase, asking about, uh, are we having too much regulation? Because we have too much regulation, we can't grow our economy. And so it's a fight between uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, the, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, just yesterday asked uh, Bernanke in a very public forum a very difficult question, meaning that he was, he was referring to um, is our economy right now experiences too much regulation and all the things that have occurred since 2008 that may be hampering the ability of our economy to get out of this hole that we're in and, 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 and speed up job growth and, 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 and growth of GDP. Um, and, and so it brings to the fore an underlying issue. You know, you can either have uh, too little regulation and you end up with a 2008 debacle, or you have too much regulation and you just stay in a hole. You can never get out of it, and on top of which, if you have too much regulation, uh, the expertise that we have in financial markets, and we do have that in terms of leadership in, in the world on that, it may go elsewhere. It may end up going to Asia or, or, or Europe, where uh, they'll have more friendly regulatory regimes. So it's, that, that is centrally an issue that, that comes through in my book. The other thing that occurred that, that I find even a little bit more eyebrow-raising is, is the fact that about two months ago, my editor sent me a, an article that had appeared in Washington, and it was an article about something called economic warfare. And it seems that the Department of Defense had commissioned uh, a study and a report to be published about this issue of economic warfare. Uh, now, my book deals with what I call financial terrorism. And so I, read, I, I got my, my hands on this report through friends of mine and uh, read it, and realized as I was reading it, and I was reading it even faster as I was reading along, is, is that about 90% of it mirror the things that come through the storyline in my book. Now, that why is that striking for me is because independent of me and I, independent of them, uh, people related to the Department of Defense had come up with a scenario that talked about um, terrorists no longer just interested in bombing things, but rather in a more subversive way, in men in gray suits, making plans and strategies that are a little bit more sophisticated, wherein they could really damage our financial markets and our economy eventually. And they are looking at it and at a defense level means it's no longer just an issue of, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission and then the Treasury trying to regulate our markets and making sure that people don't do bad things, bad things in the sense of being unfair capitalism. But rather, it's, a, it's an issue of war. It's a warfare issue, and that, that, that to me is quite revealing. Uh, and, and this is why, right now, my book is being read. People that I've been talking to, actually, in, on the Hill, in Congress, and 
people in Homeland Security and people in the intelligence community that are reading the book because it, a novel sometimes has a way of delivering a message about things that are going on in the real world, probably maybe oftentimes in a more interesting way than, than uh, an academic book would. Right. And in, in, in terms of a specific scenario, and may, maybe your answer will be, you know, read your, your novel, um, what, what, from a specific uh, incident or scenario, what kind of keeps you awake at night knowing, you know, knowing, given your knowledge? I think the thing that keeps me awake at night is that it's very hard in our extremely connected global economy. It's very connected on the Internet. Um, to know all those little pockets of things that are going on, all the conversations, no matter how large the building of the National Security Agency is, where they're eavesdropping on everything, um, I, I just don't think it can capture um, the sense of all those conversations and all those motives of people all around the world. Um, so, uh, and, and I've seen, I've heard this echoed too by, by people in Homeland Security, and that is that it's, it's, it's impossible to think that everything will be controlled. Right. And that other events cannot happen. In other words, we're, you know, the beauty of our country is the liberties that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that attracts many people from around the world to come here and succeed and, 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 and to do their best and, and, and be their best um, and better themselves. Unfortunately, that also makes it a very open economy, and it's very difficult to, to, to control everything that happens in this economy. And I can assure you that if there are people trying to do illicit things at this point, they're not putting you know, the name of Osama bin Laden on their passport so they can be easily identified. Uh, there are all sorts out there in, in, in terms of plans and objectives of people, and the communication that they have uh, is not always captured. Right. Um, well, when I was researching for this interview, I was surprised to discover that your father-in-law is Paul Erdman. Erdman, for those listeners who might not know, was a best-selling writer of financial thrillers in the 1970s and 80s. His first novel was The Billion Dollar Sure Thing, which won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for the best first novel when it was published in the early 80s, um, or I think maybe the 70s, actually. Um was Erdman's Erdman's work was was that an inspiration to you when you started working on your uh, novel? The very, very much so. Uh, thank you for mentioning him. Very much so. He um, uh, he wrote many things. He actually uh, created the genre that he called financial fiction or fifi. He used to say with a smile. <laughs> and um, yeah, exactly. It gives me a smile when I think about that as well. Um, and and I had the pleasure to help him research. Uh, and even edit some of his books. So I got to know his process of, of what they went about, and, and this is actually going back a little bit to your first question, which is the thing that he did very well, I think, is he, he was a Ph.D. in economics by training, a financial guy. And what he did very well is explain, you know, very, you know, arcane, um, esoteric things in finance and economy, but bring it down so that it was explainable within the context of a novel, a story. And, and so that is something that I learned from him, and that was uh, a lot of what drove his success, his ability to do that. So it, it's something as an homage that I, that I thank him for that, and in a sense he got me started in, in even thinking about writing a novel because of that background that I had with him. Gotcha. And, and what is your background regarding fiction writing? Uh, obviously you, you worked with him. Zero. Before. What's that? Zero. Zero? Zero. 
<laughs> other than other than other than helping uh, Paul uh, edit and, uh, and and research some of his books, which is something, and I'm a, I'm a great reader. I just I've loved reading forever uh, since I was very young. I've just read a lot. And so, uh, so, so, so what, what, what was your motivation to sit down and write the fund? Well, um, it was actually prompted a little bit by, by Paul because he asked me to help him uh, on some of the business side of some of the things that he was doing. Um, unfortunately, last year he passed away a few years ago. And um, he asked me to look at a novel that he had uh, written but had yet to be published. And I looked at it, and I and I thought to myself, I probably needs a little bit of an opening, kind of a James Bond kind of you know dramatic thing that happens. And so I jotted some something down, <clears throat> and uh, and showed it to him, and uh, and I actually showed it to my wife as well, <clears throat> and they both said it was, they loved it, you know, and they thought maybe I should try writing, and I always doing just to try to propel his book and forward and stuff, and so um, that just gave me the impetus to start thinking about writing a story, which I did. I wrote about a hundred pages, and I showed it to a few agents, people in the in in the business, just to make sure that I was on some path that made sense. Mm-hmm. And they actually got very taken by the story, and they said, you should really finish it. Which is, and this is what became this book. And after that, I was just extremely fortunate because it's a very hard business to break into as a debut author, uh, and finding some great people who were very helpful. Um, and and one of them was a woman by the name of Lynn Nesbitt, who was a very well-known agent, and she just wasn't taking any clients on uh, at that point. But she read my book and loved it and, and, and signed me up uh, within a period of an afternoon, which was a very heady experience for me as the banker. Uh, <laughs> I don't know very much about publishing, uh, but she was very kind. Uh, and from there, uh, I was even more doubly uh, surprised and fortunate that, that she matched me up with publisher that had published Paul Erdman, and so that my editor on this book is actually a person that had edited several books by Paul Erdman, so he understood <laughs> the, the genre that we were talking about. That's great. Isn't it? So are you, are you working on another financial thriller? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I, I, I love writing. I did not realize that I would love it this much. I love the aspect of sitting down myself in front of the screen and getting inside characters' heads and, and making them talk. It's, it's, it's an absolutely pleasurable thing to do. And all the more now I discover, because I did that in isolation, obviously, but now that my book has just been published, early readers are coming back and telling me wonderful things, and so I, I appreciate it even more, this, this aspect of writing it down. That's great. Well, um, again, we've been speaking with H.T. Norea, author of the new financial thriller, The Fun, which is available in bookstores now. H.T., where can people find you online? Um, my website, which is um, htnarea.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter as author Norea, and the Facebook page is h.t.norea. Um, and on several places like the you know International Thriller Writers website and uh, the, the, the Mystery Writers website. Uh, but certainly the, uh, the, my website will get you there, and, and certainly if anybody wants to connect with me, there's a, there's a, a drop-down menu there to send me a little uh, message there, which I, I've been getting a lot of, and I really appreciate that. Well, great. Well, thanks and for taking it. The... Yeah, and then obviously it's you know, available in all major booksellers and uh, small bookstores that, that I appreciate a great deal, independent bookstores across the country as well, and obviously Amazon and, and BNN.com. 
Great. So that, uh, again, the novel is The Fund, and, and like HT just said, it's available in independent bookstores around the country and uh, via online bookstores as well. Thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Thank you very much, Jeff. Sure. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.